Hey everybody, welcome back to Melanated Faith and thank you so much for indulging our need for a break. We are so, so happy to be back. And today we have with us artist, activist, and writer, Sho Baraka. Welcome. We are so excited to have you and excited for our conversation today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to, to chat it up on Melanated Faith. Yes, or thank you so much for joining us. Um, so let me read your a little bit of your bio because we're Uh-oh, all about. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> we're, it's you know here we're all about giving black people their f- flowers, and I'm a huge fan. So um, I just want to first give a plug for Show Baraka's fantastic 2016 album, The Narrative. Um, if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to listen. It's a classic, still relevant even five years later. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yes, huge fan. Um, so, Show Baraka combines the artistic platform with his academic history to contribute to a unique perspective, elevating the contemporary conversation on faith, art, and culture. As an alumnus of Tuskegee University and the University of North Texas, Baraka is a co-founder of Fourth District and the Anne Campaign and has served as an adjunct professor at Wake Forest School of Divinity. He is also an original member of the influential hip-hop consortium 116 Click, having recorded with Reach Records. He lives in Atlanta with his wife Patrice and their three children. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you for having me. Excellent. You did a good job with that bio. You made it sound really good. Just want to let you know. (laughs) (laughs) It is really good. I mean, this is very impressive. And I just have to say, I did not go to Tuskegee, but it has a special place in my heart. My uncle was a business professor for like 30 years there, um, grew up visiting him in the summers. And he was like, I mean, he is the kind of higher education ideal in our family. And so I love Tuskegee and I'm so happy to see it's so well represented. So we want to get into it and ask you a few questions. So one of them- Can I ask you a question first? What's up with the two T's in your name? Like, (laughs) (laughs) the faith. (laughs) You got more faith. You got a double portion is what you're telling me. I do. I have a double portion of faith. (laughs) My parents, um, specifically my mom, just really wanted me um, to be different. She almost died having me. Her Mm. original plan was to name me Francine. And that's her name. And so I was going to be like a, a, I don't know, a junior. Do you call girls juniors? Anyways. whatever. Do you think? I was going to be a junior, but then when she almost died having me, she was like, you know what? I'm going to change her name to Faith um, because it took Faith to have her. And then she said, um, (laughs) and then she said she wanted to put two T's in my name because she wanted me to be unique and to stand out um, just because of the mark she felt that I would have in the world. So there's that. Hey, man. I thought it was a typo the first time I saw it. I was like... (laughs) Uh, but then I saw it here and I was like, well, apparently that's not, I'm sure she knows how to spell her name. So. <laughs> yeah, not but a typo. Dope. Let's go. Yeah. All righty. I'm sorry. I'm, no, look, you're good. Just be ready for this because I'm all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, you know, prophetic naming is like very important. Absolutely. So, you know, and if we're going to ask about Faith's name, Shobraka, where, where does that, what does that mean? It means, uh, so my full name is Amisho um, Baraka. Okay. And so it's Swahili. Um, and Mwisho is actually how you're supposed to pronounce it, but it means final. And then Baraka means to be a blessing or to be prosperous, very similar to the Hebrew or the Arabic Barack Obama or Baruch. <laughs> so it's basically like the Bantu language and Swahili, I mean, uh, and Hebrew and 
and Arabic are very close. So yeah, so I was supposed to be the final blessing in my family, but they decided to have one more kid after me. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. I was the final boy. So I think, I think that I kind of I remix it in some senses. So, yeah. so as a kid, then, did you know that like you wanted to be an artist or did you grow up with more of like, you know, the conventional pressure to like go to college, you know, get a job and, you know, yeah. the whole American Both dream? in. Both in. I think uh, um, college. So my father played pro, pro sports. And so it wasn't go to college so that you can. It wasn't the pressure to go to college necessarily to. Um, well, I guess it was. It was like if the pathway to success is to go to college, especially in black families, it, it, you know, you felt like this, like you don't you got to go to college because ain't nobody, you know, ain't, I ain't taking care of you. You know what I'm saying? So um, but in that it, there was no pressure to perform a particular task or vocation. It was always we just want you to be successful. And so a lot of us felt this pressure without, you know, it being communicated or explicitly said or done to play sports because my father played professional football. And so in most cases, you have to play college ball in order to go professional. And so the goal was always to get a a scholarship so that you can play professional ball. I mean, uh, you know, amateur sports uh, in college and then go on. But at a young age, my parents also, while we love sports, they gave us a lot of black art. So my my parents were fans of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, Baraka, they got Baraka, all myself and my other brother, our middle names are Baraka because of Amiri Baraka, the poet and writer. And so uh, these are the types of people who <laughs> who informed kind of like our household and who we were. My mom was an active uh, member of the Black Panther Party in Los Angeles. And so, uh, you know, art, Black storytelling, Black consciousness was prevalent in our house. And so what ended up happening was... Um, I started off writing poetry because of Langston Hughes and Claude McKay and those folks that they had me reading. But my oldest brother was a huge fan of hip hop um, and he used to constantly put hip hop in front of me. And then I realized in high school that, you know, the hip hop artists got more attention than the poets. And so I was like, well, let me go ahead and make this transition. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's kind of like how I got into the arts. And then later, uh, you know, I was a clown all through life. And so uh, people were like, you should do theater and acting. And so um, in college, I got into that. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, um, yeah, but some people would say that hip hop is poetry. It is. Music, so, no, it's so there you go. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. So you kind of talked about maybe some more of your like secular or influences, Um could you maybe talk about your idea of how that evolved in sort of um, in relation to your faith and Christianity? Mm-hmm. What do you see the relationship between Christ and creativity? And has that evolved over time? Absolutely. Um, what what happened is, is there seemed to be this dissonance, but then the more with the totality of the question, there seemed to be this dissonance. But as I matured and understood what faith to be, I realized that the, there was more synergy in faith, creativity, and even the the, the, the proposition of like black people in this country, um, because there was this disconnect through the spaces that I had become a Christian, if that makes sense. So, for instance, I um, yeah, you know, I didn't go to church a whole lot growing up, but when we did go to church, there were very fairly traditional black churches, 
And if you're going to listen to music, you listen to Kurt Franklin or Fred Hammond. You didn't really listen to, they didn't like Christian hip hop and they didn't like any kind of secular music, even though that's what we listened to when we left. And so for me, there was this this taintedness or this view of God really has this bifurcation between secular and sacred. And he doesn't want you to engage. But then when I got into um, college and I started to, and I be, actually became a Christian and I started to go more white evangelical churches, there was less of a restriction on secular sacred, but there was there was more of a restriction on black culture. Yeah. And so the things that I loved, it seemed like, well, what's really true and pure seemed to be, and even if it wasn't explicitly said, what's what's more true is these white theologians, this white narrative of Christianity. And so what happened was is you have this young man who's indelible and and has and is shaped and formed by these two worlds, and then eventually at this crisis of faith in 2012. 2011, 2012, where I began, I, I met with this individual and he basically told me, he's like, where'd you go to school? I was like, Tuskegee. He's like, who did you grow up reading in Tuskegee and before? And I started listening to all these individuals. And he said, you don't think that their information was informed by their faith? And it really started to, to like penetrate into me deep. And I was like, yeah, well, when I think about Frederick Douglass, when I think about the early works of Du Bois, when I think about Carter G. Woodson, when I think about Harriet Tubman, when I think about Sojourner Truth, when I think about Mary McLeod Bethune, like they weren't theologians in title, but their life and work is informed by their faith. And so for me, I was like, well, hold up. You know, I was like, where's this, where's the tension between creativity, faith and activism? And there is no, there is no disconnect for a lot of these folks. Like the very, and I talk about this in my book, the very, existence of Black faith in this country is tethered to this idea of justice, resilience, and joy. Like you can't separate the Negro spirituals from a call for future glory, but also a demand for today liberation. Like it's both in. And so for me, that's how I had to start to begin to process my faith. It's like, okay, everything doesn't have to be explicitly didactic in its communication but it tells the truth about society. Yeah, no, that's great. So do you think about your vocation and calling differently now than you did maybe 10 years ago? Absolutely. I think of it, I think about it now as oftentimes I could be really dramatic when I talk about this and I try not to be extremely pious and, uh, and, and pretentious, but the reality of it is, is it's life and death. Like whatever you do, is worship unto the Lord. And so you are shaping, you are building, you are constructing, and you're cultivating not only what you believe about God, right? But you're also constructing and building what you think about others. And so how you participate in your vocation is utterly important because you're either contributing to the flourishing or the detriment of your community. It's no either, there's no, and one of the things I talk about in my book, no one sw- swings an uninformed or an informed hammer. Like the hammer is always informed by an idea. You may not know what that idea is because your boss told you to swing that hammer. But the reality is you should know why you're swinging the hammer. Like, why am I building this? Why are we? Why are we? Oh, this may cause displacement for people in this. Well, should I be contributing to this? You know, is bringing money into my pockets. Oh, I shouldn't care. OK, you know, so these are the things that we have to process through. Yeah. And um, I've seen vocation is not just something that, and here's another, you know, I guess you can say mildly controversial. 
oftentimes we think about calling and vocation. You just think about what you're good at and you say, well, what are you good at? And do that. And I think that's romantic. I think that's beautiful. It's poetic at times, but everybody doesn't have the luxury to just do what they're good at. Some people just have to pay the bills. And apart from just sometimes having to pay the bill, I think sometimes what I see in scripture is that there's a need that is presented and God is calling you to address the need. And uh, there are many times we can look at Daniel, we can look at Joseph, we can look at Moses, we can look at Esther, we can look at Ruth. Like a lot of these folks, some of them didn't want to address, like they didn't feel adequate. They were like, ah, and they weren't even skilled. And some of them weren't even skilled at it, but they either learned or God gave them assistance and there was a need. And they said, you know what, Lord, thy will be done in my life. And sometimes there are needs in front of us in our communities and our cities and our nation. And you, you see it and that should be your calling, like to address that need. And we trust and believe that the spirit will indwell us to be able to, to, to work adequately. Mm, yeah. That's good. So one thing that's really evident in listening to the narrative is your belief in the connections between the past mm -hmm. and the present. So track titles include maybe both 1865, Mythhood USA, 1937, which is also a section in your book. So can you talk a little bit about like why history and particularly the way that we mm -hmm. share stories about our past is really important? I think in any social field, any any field where you're doing, no, any field. I think pretty much in any vocation, it is important for us to understand the work that was done before, not only the good work, but the dangerous work. I, you know, many of people have talked about America's history and I've heard many people, different variations of, of what it means to repair, to consider reparations or to reconcile the damage of America's history, especially within racial injustice in this country. You can't deal with the present unless you deal with the past. And so the past has implications that impact us today. You as an individual, you're, you have a wonderful story about your name and that informs you, that shapes you. The past shaped why you have two T's in your name. And that's important. So to somebody to mock the spelling of your name, mocks the story, mocks your history, right? And in the same sense, in order for me to be a good storyteller, to be a good artist, I have to know Toni Morrison. I have to know Zora Neale Hurston. I have to know these individuals, Claude McKay's, the, you know, Paul Robert, like, because I want to know who the luminaries are before me and, and the great work that they did in order for me to tell accurate stories about today. I also want to know about the dangerous stories of, you know, of, uh, of, of, of racial trauma, I mean, racial terror and, and segregation and Jim Crow in order for me to still accurately tell the beautiful stories of today. And so to know the past, I think, makes us better students of the present and it makes us understand our future hope and where we're striving to as a as citizens in a very messy, complex story and country. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I love your idea of kind of reframing this idea of vocation and calling. Um, I think that it, for even American Christians, it's often very individualistic and about their own kind of yep. self-fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I appreciated about your book, he saw that it was good, um, is that it talks about art and creativity as a tool for healing, 
not in an individualistic and sort of self-therapeutic way, but mm-hmm. also as a tool for dealing with societal or systemic brokenness. Absolutely. So I think one question that comes to mind would be, why should art make us think about the world and its brokenness? And then what would you say to people who maybe are like, I just want art to be escapism or to re- reaffirm how I already see the world? Mm. Okay, so I think escapism is is it's okay. Like, I think art, all art in some form, even if it's if it's tethered to justice, if it's intentional, if it's intentionally tethered to justice, is a form of escapism. Like, you can't, I can't sit here and tell me that, um, like, Parable of the Sower um, is not by Octavia uh, uh, Butler is uh, not escapism in some sort of way, but it's still very truthful about history. It's still very truthful about society and a future kind of dystopian society. But it's it's escapism. I mean, music, sometimes we just want to... I think sometimes what we call escapism is is just the joy of life. So for instance, uh, the cha-cha slide is the first thing that came up to me. <laughs> you play the cha-cha slide at a Black event. I mean, we go... Yeah. <laughs> We gonna get it. You know we gonna have a we good gonna time. Dance. Yeah. We gonna dance. Yeah, that's fine. Like that's not escaping. You play, you know, before I let go by Frankie Beverly or by Beyonce. We gonna have a good time. <laughs> we gonna dance. That's some people may call that escapism, but I think part of the full canon of humanity talks about the joys of life. Like we gotta. I mean, I think about Black history. I think about. The Soul Train line, which probably came from cakewalking, and cakewalking was an original form of like mockery towards black people. But black people took this thing and and they would dance in a competition for a cake, and they would do these brittle, these brilliant routines, and that kind of probably evolved into the Soul Train line. Things that we think are just, I guess, entertainment and baseless actually have strong meaning. Actually, have strong. Yeah. Strong connection to like giving us our humanity. And so cha-cha slide before I let go, whatever, you know, party song that doesn't seem like it's connected to any deep truth in a way is just affirming our humanity. And I think that is perfectly fine. I do think what happens is very much like Ecclesiastes, as you scholars may know, you yeah. seminary grads and stuff. Ecclesiastes talks about at times where you're like, you know, sometimes it's good to mourn though, because it gives us a, a, a real sense of, uh, of humanity, it you know it builds our empathy muscles, and so in that sense, you don't want to you don't want too much light. And I even talk about this in my book. You don't want too much light because too much light is damaging, but you also don't want too much dark because that impairs our vision as well. So um, that's my view on escapism. Um, I forgot the first question. Um, <laughs> yes, how do you like? How does art art help? Kind of the thesis of your book, how does art deal with systemic um, brokenness beyond sort of just kind of our individual making us feel good? Yeah, I think one of the things that I love about the art that I think is that is good. I do. People say there's no such thing as bad art. There is such thing as bad (laughs) art. Um, But good art to me, uh, I think bad art is like real forced trite art like when it's just obvious it's like oh gosh like that was so obvious like yeah i think but i think art that is really good disarms people like so i have a strong belief about something and you put art in front of me that's arguing a different point 
I am more likely to engage that than to listen to somebody lecture or to listen to somebody like give a sermon about something that I totally disagree with because something about art expands the imagination. And so even if I don't agree with it, I'm more, more willing to engage and wrestle with it. And so I think that's the reason why art is really important because it, it can, it can expand the imagination around ideas and issues. And it, it has this this suspension of 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 be, like belief and disbelief where it's like <clears throat> yeah this is not real but imagine so like black mirror right i don't know if you guys are engaged black mirror like, <laughs> i love black mirror and it's like this ain't real but <laughs> so you know but imagine right and so you're sitting there and now you, what you do is you look at your phone yeah. and you're like i don't know maybe i should just it's put this down it. for a moment you know what i'm saying or you think about some of the, the things that they wrestle with in but some imagine. of those episodes, and you're like, huh, maybe I have to reconsider how I view this thing because of the ridiculousness and how they presented this in in this particular episode. So I think art has a way of disarming us and presenting, like reconstructing and reconstituting our imagination to see the potentials in something um, without making us feel like we have to be wholly invested in it, if that makes sense. So what do you think as we're talking about creativity? We think of it as something that we do solo or alone sometimes, um, or either you're creative or you're not creative. Um, Mm -hmm. But what about the people who don't feel like they're creative, like an accountant or a math teacher? How can we encourage creativity in other people? That's beautiful. Um, The way that I try to proposition it, even for folks who aren't religious and don't believe that, like, you know, we're created by a a creative God, because in that sense, God creates us. And if we reflect his attributes, then we too are creators. And um, so in that sense, if we are creators, that means we create things, right? By, by definition. And if we know that sin is into the world and that we are living in a fallen world, that means we have the potential to create good stuff. And we also have the potential to create bad stuff. And so no matter who you are, If you are an accountant, you can contribute to the misappropriation of numbers and fundings on purpose in order to manipulate or to uh, to cheat people out of their money. So you are creating something there. If you're an engineer, you can create in a lazy way and therefore bridges fall apart, roads fall, you know, fall apart, levees break. And so how do we as individuals see that no matter if you are a creative you are contributing to the creation of a product or a person. And so therefore, what you want to do is give your all in the act of cultivating. And if you give your all in the act of cultivating, especially as one who is a Christian who believes in Jesus, then what you do is you recognize that you are worshiping in the very work you're doing. Um, And so this is a whole nother issue, but on on the same page, if we believe that we are creators and that all things were created perfect in a garden. And we believe that sin enters the world and that those things now have corruption involved in them. If Jesus is calling us to redeem every aspect of life, not just our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, then he's also calling us to redeem the systems that need repair. And so for somebody to believe that there's no such thing or that the gospel doesn't deal with social injustices, to me, is somebody who has a very incomplete gospel. Yes, 
Exactly. That's so good. Yeah. I love the idea of like broadening this idea of like creativity or what it means to be a creator. Um, Cause I think sometimes our head immediately goes to the important and the kind of work that right. you do, but like, yeah, like this idea that we're all creating or contributing or cultivating to the flourishing of others. Right. And so, absolutely. Some wouldn't call it. Some wouldn't call it important. Some would say <laughs> it was, it's less important. But uh, I definitely think it's just as because artists shape culture. Yeah, they do. No, I. I they do. Yeah, I completely right. agree. I mean, I think so many. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't watch it because I don't like horror. But like, how many people who watched them were like, "Oh, I had no idea about like housing, housing segregation, yeah, law." And if you don't know, mm-hmm. them is um, a horror anthology on Amazon Prime. I'm not recommending it, but I'm just saying the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, the story is about a black family that moves into a predominantly white neighborhood in like the 1950s or 60s, oh, yeah. and how it inspired people to like for some people who didn't know that history to look more deeply into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. You you know, and then everybody is, you know, there seems to be a black whore renaissance thanks to Get Out. So, you know, I yeah, to your point, like art is so important. It shapes so many of the things, both subtly and I think sometimes explicitly about how we see the world. Okay, so you say in the book, one of the quotes that really kind of stood out to me is you say, great stories have heroes and villains. In the myths and movies, it's usually easy to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. But the stories of human life are usually more complex. Here, our character is not fixed, as in a comic book, but it's shaped by the acts that we do in our daily lives. So, in light of that statement, what sorts of things are worth wanting for our lives, both creatively um, and then particularly for us as Christians? Like, what sorts of things are worth giving our sort of daily in and out um, so that we have more hero days than maybe villain days? <laughs> um but yeah, I just thought that was so profound and yeah. that this this idea that it's you're not as humans, we're not either or that we contain multitudes mm-hmm. um, and that every day you're choosing. Someday you're the hero, someday you're the villain. And I just thought for Christians, like what? Yeah. What kind of life is worth wanting in light of that statement in light of the gospel? Yeah, I, I think it's very, you know, and one of the things I probably didn't do a good job in the book is over communicating that most times we are neither heroes nor villains. We are like role, we are ancillary characters who just <laughs> operate. And sometimes we either cheer on heroes or we cheer on the villains or we contribute to the 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 success of the hero or we contribute to the success of the villain. And uh but to your point, like we have to make concerted efforts to choose each day do I want to be brave or do I want to be courageous or do I want to just be apathetic and allow this conveyor belt of evil and wickedness to just continue to move? Cause see my, my, my personal belief is, um, and maybe even theological belief is that the world is a wicked place and it's, and left up to our own devices, we will do what's most beneficial for us. And so if we do nothing, then we're on this conveyor belt of evil and we'll just continue to go towards, you know, recklessness, licentiousness, you know, pride, arrogance, whatever. But you have to fight against that that current of of self-indulgence in order to serve people, in order to live selflessly. And oftentimes what we think is like, oh, I've become a Christian. And so therefore, there's no way that I can part like 
possibly contribute to the evils of the world. Like, there's no way that, like, as a Christian, I mean, I'm, I believe in Jesus. No, the reality is, is no. Society, history has proved that societies, religious or not, can participate in some wicked and heinous acts. And so you have to make concerted efforts to evaluate, to do self-inventory and say, what am I doing? Like, what actually am I contributing to today? And, uh, and how do I show service and love for other people? And that means sometimes evaluating the work you do. Maybe you need to quit your job. I don't know. That means evaluating the way you treat people and relationships. How do I treat people? Why, why do I live in this neighborhood? Where do I shop? What types of things do I, I consume? And like, wh- what, what am I, you know, how do I vote? What policies am I supporting? And uh, not just what I say, but what I do. Like, I can say all the right things, but what am I doing? Like, I know a lot of Black people who talk the best game ever, but they don't shop at Black-owned businesses. They don't live in Black communities. They don't frequent Black, you know, they don't patronize Black. It's just like, okay, but you a justice warrior, but you ain't ain't done nothing for the Black community. I'm like, please, like, let's... And so, you know, so it's not just a white issue, it's black issues too. And so what do we, how do we contribute to the flourishing of our neighbors and our communities and our society in a way that may have to remove us from being, I guess, the hero and also making sure that we're not the villain. So. Yeah, that's so good. So I guess my final question um, is, you know, why did you write this book? And then what do you hope for the, your readers? What do you want them to take away from? He saw that I it was good. I wrote this book because Waterbrook offered me a whole lot of money. No, it's plain. <laughs> back, to your, back to your comment about Boeing. Sometimes it is about what is missing Facts. in the world. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, there's very practical and very philosophical reasons. Practical reasons is I've always wanted to write. Uh, I'm, you know, I know that most people know me as a hip hop artist, but there's always been this in this uh story I'm looking for, this not anxiety, this satisfaction about just being known as somebody who's a hip hop artist. Cause I just never thought I would only be that. And I've always wanted to write since I was young. Always wanted to write. Mostly wanted to write fiction. And so for those people who get the book, there will be fiction all through the book. So that's one very practical thing is that I wanted to write. I had the opportunity, you know, somebody presented me with chances to write. And I said, you know what? I want to do this. I want to write this book. What I wanted people to get from it was that good oftentimes vacillates or it it moves. It's evasive. And sometimes what we think is good may not be good. And we at times can be the reasons why something's not good. And that our lives are short shaped by the stories we tell and the stories that we tell shape how we work and how we work contributes to whether or not there are injustices in the world. And the injustices that we face sometimes are very complex and we won't agree on how to create those solutions. And sometimes when people present themselves, particular institutions to fight injustice, to tell stories, um, they're going to be in the palace. They're going to be some who wander in the desert. But how are you using your platform for the glory of God? You know what I'm saying? And so um, at the end of the day, can we be effective for the benefit of others? Can we be effective for God's glory? But also, can we keep our sanity while doing that? 
And uh, hopefully this book is a presentation of what I think may be some, <laughs> some good ideas, good philosophies, and good postures also, because I think the, the, the way we position ourselves is very important in the work that we do. That's so good. Yes. Okay. Hey, everybody. It's time for our favorite segment and yours. Go off, fam. All right. So, show you're going to go first. You're going to tell the people something you're loving, you're blessed right now, or something that is an absolute mess. All right. So, I, I don't know how long y'all want me to talk, but I'm going to try to keep it short. So, I am a uh, blessed. It's both a blessed and a mess. This COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. So, here we go. I am so happy. I am blessed that we are seeming to come out of this thing, or we are seemingly coming out of this thing. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad people are, you know, being somewhat mindful, wearing masks, uh, getting vaccinated. And I think it's beautiful. I think we got to consider one another. I think you, you know, you know, don't be coughing <laughs> on people. Don't be at the restaurants coughing and sneezing on everybody. You know, I'm at the restaurant the other day sneezing and coughing. I'm like, I hope you were vaccinated. <laughs> speaking of vaccinations, speaking of vaccinations, both a blessing and a mess. I, I'm like, look, people, get vaccinated if you really believe in vaccinations. I believe in vaccination. I'm I'm all for vaccinations. I think it's important. Uh, I think we need to consider one another in, in a sense that we want this to, to to be over so that we can have flourish in our society. However, if people don't get vaccinated, don't be shaming these folks. You know what I'm saying? Like, let these people live. We got to figure out how to allow them to live in society because it's not like the science is 100 percent accurate. Like, you know, there's reasons why people have a problem with vaccinations. But the other thing is a mess. I'm not sure I'm excited about these vaccine passports and cards. Like, you gonna tell me that I can't come in somewhere because somebody ain't got to vaccinate? I don't know. I'm just, I'm a little concerned about that. I just feel like that's another form of discrimination. Um, you know, but I do want people to get vaccinated, but don't force people that you can't eat here. You can't go into Walmart. And Walmart is where COVID, COVID started, first of all. Let's say that. But I want to make sure that we don't use this oh as a way gosh. to discriminate against people. Now, if you got to go to other countries, I can understand that. There are certain countries I have to travel to. I have to get a particular vaccination. Get that. But to eat at a restaurant, to go into a store, I'm like, you know, come on, just make folks wear masks maybe. But showing vaccine cards and et cetera, I think that's where we go too far. And I can see a subtle injustice in that. And uh, we got to be careful not to... Not for this to be a mess. Yes. But continue the blessing of taking care of yourself, making sure you're taking care of other folks, and let's not spread this any longer. Yes, I agree with that. Like, no shame. Like, no shame for people no shame. that still need to wear a mask. Let's have an um, attitude of grace wherever yes. you fall on the spectrum. Okay, so I'm going to start with my mess. And I'm sorry, this might be a little long, but I'm going to go off about the death penalty, which has been in the news in recent weeks. Um, there was a story about the discovery of new DNA in the case of a man, Liddell Lee, who has been executed four years ago, the DNA of someone else, not Liddell Lee. Um, South Carolina reinstituted firing squads. And, and so now um, you get to choose between a firing squad and the electric chair. Um, and then here in my home state of Texas, Quentin Jones was executed on May 19th. Mr. Jones was convicted of killing his great aunt after beating her to death because she wouldn't give him money. Um, he has maintained that he was on drugs at the time, pretty much 
most people have agreed that he in prison has turned his life around. His family pleaded for clemency. They wanted him to serve life in prison instead of being executed. Um, his sole surviving aunt um, said this in a statement, because I was so close to my sister for so long, her death really hurt me a lot. Even so, God is merciful. Quentin can't bring her back. I can't bring her back. And I'm writing to ask you to please spare Quentin's life. Um, I think for me, that kind of like encapsulates my just like frustration with death penalty generally. Um, as someone who used to believe that the death penalty was okay, based on sort of that eye for an eye principle of the Old Testament, um, I think as I've gotten older and I've experienced more of the world and I've read more and learned more about scripture, as I've read and learned more about how the death penalty operates in practice, um, and mm-hmm. as someone who believes in the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb, I believe the death penalty to be immoral. Um, I think even if you don't agree that it's immoral, I think that it's cruel and unusual punishment (laughs) to shoot people (laughs) or make them choose the electric chair. And I think that when you look into the death penalty, even in its application, it's often arbitrarily applied and it's applied inequitably. Black people, poor, marginalized people are more likely to be sentenced to death. Um, I sat years ago on a panel in Texas with a woman who used to be on sort of the highest court in Texas that decides death penalty appeals. And what she said is she had become increasingly skeptical of the death penalty in her work because she saw that it's not reserved for the worst of the worst. It basically is based on the prosecutor you have, where you live, where your crime was committed. And then I think also, too, evidence has shown that it's not a deterrent to crime. And for me, the price of killing even one innocent person is too high. Um, And so I just want to encourage you guys to do some more reading and learning. I highly recommend, if you have not already, reading Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. Um, I would read Justice Brennan's Dissent for the More Legally Minded in one of the seminal death penalty cases about race, McCluskey v. Kemp. Um, Shane Claiborne's Executing Grace, and then read a testimony from our former death row inmate, Anthony Hinton, um, The Sun Does Shine. I would seek out the work of organizations like EJI and then conservatives, conservatives concerned about the death penalty. I believe and I agree with Brian Stevenson that we are more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I'm not naive. I understand there's evil in the world. This is not an argument against consequences for sin or the perpetuation of evil. It is an argument against a culture of death and treating people as disposable. This is an argument against dehumanization. I'm sorry, that was so long, but it just really... I, it's been on the front of my mind this week, and I just I, I really feel like we need a better conversation um, around criminal justice. And I think, as especially for Christians, like we should be against the dehumanization of people. And the death penalty is if nothing, as if the death penalty is nothing. The death penalty is nothing but dehumanization. Okay, so I don't really have a good transition um, to my bless. I really feel like there's no like smooth way to do this. You know what? That's okay. Just jump right in. You gotta give them. You gotta give them the truth, and then you just gotta go. Okay, now we're gonna move on to some other things. <laughs> we're gonna we're, we're gonna move on. Sorry, um, but um, so I like to end on a note of hope. My bless is just the joy of celebrating the humans of my life. Um, 
a couple of weeks ago, my best friend and friend of the podcast, Lindsay Sweeney, turned 40 and um, and in true Lindsay fashion, gave her friends a gift and took us to the hill country and wine tasting. And it was delightful and wonderful. And um, again, happy birthday to her. And thanks for hosting us. Um, and then lastly, I want to shout out my little brother who became a homeowner recently and Guys, if you understand the ongoing discrimination in housing and mortgage lending to African-Americans, it is definitely worth celebrating my brother and sister-in-law and getting their first home. I can't wait to visit and have my own space there. <laughs> that's amazing. And congrats to them. I mean, considering the housing market, that's a huge accomplishment right now. So my bless, what I'm loving right now is just the fact that I have made it through packing and sorting and organizing and I officially gave away half of my belongings gave away sold half of my belongings and so I'm just thankful that I got through that process um things are in storage I have a few things here with me at my brother's house and so if you hear kids screaming um well you know why I'm in a new place (laughs) I I need that testimony of it working out because I'm in the middle of that right now and it's so stressful. Oh my gosh. So oh my gosh. I'm, yes, I love hearing this like on the other side, a reminder it's going to be okay. <laughs> purge, purge now. You know, I, I tell people this. They say, how do you do it moving all the time? I, I'm very organized when I move and I get rid of the things that I do not want on the front end to the best of my ability. I know that there might be like 10% of the things that I brought that I might have to sort through and say, oh, I don't want that. But that's better than the, you know, 100% I was at before and dragging (laughs) all of that with me. So um, (laughs) this saved me money money on a storage unit. This saved me money on a moving truck and time and labor for people, everything. So just be, you know, my best advice for packing is to get rid of the things that are going to cost you extra money to bring with you if you really don't want them. And um, that way you can, um, you know, unpack in peace. I unpacked in like a day and not even a day, like maybe five hours because I had everything that I wanted with me here at my brother's house and I didn't excessively bring a bunch of extra stuff. I just brought what I knew I needed, but I meticulously sat down and organized it. And that took me hours to do. But when I got here, you know what? I just popped it in drawers. I had my little box of office stuff like it all was everything had a place and I put it in its place. So awesome. That's my encouragement to you all. Just even if you want to just now, just go through your house, spring clean. Um, <laughs> it'll, it'll make you feel better. And yes. What is a mess right now? So here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the conflict going on in Israel and Palestine. And and what I want to say about it, and I'm also trying to avoid saying conflict, but let's say tension, okay? What I want to say about it is for everybody to do their part to listen and read. And it's also okay. I just want to free you all of this feeling of like oh I need to like know all of the history no you just need to educate yourself about it um relieve yourself of the pressure to have all the answers and just read and listen that's what I'm doing I've been ignorant about a lot of the conflict and and the tension going on over there and so I've been learning from people and learning from people from different perspectives so I'm not just like consuming one perspective I'm trying to learn all the way around and I think in learning and in our advocacy we we do have to be very careful because there's a lot of 
anti-Semitism being steeped into some of the advocacy and that's never okay right um and i think i saw you know tasha post today about you know the oppressed becoming the oppressors that's also not okay either and so you know there's just a lot that we have to evaluate when we're talking about this topic in particular and so my encouragement to everyone is to read and to learn and to make an informed opinion and if you do not have an informed opinion just it's okay not to say anything because sometimes people are saying things and it's been, it is harmful because they don't know what they're talking about. So just do your best to read and to learn. Um, I know there's a lot of pressure on social media when everybody talks about you're silent, you're silent. I really quickly want to explain to you what we are talking about when we talk about silence. Cause I've said that online several times. When I talk about silence, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking of the people who are very loud and blatant with their opinions, um, very much so you know what they're going to say or how they feel or they're loud about causes that matter to them, things that they care about, whether, you know, whatever their position is on something and when an injustice happens, right? So I know people who are loud about, you know, let's just say human trafficking, right? But do not see the connections between what happens to human trafficking and connect that with um, the missing black girls and the missing indigenous girls and the interconnectedness of those subjects. And so when you see people who are like having their ex and they're ended and all this other stuff, but then when it comes to the issues and it's people, the very people they're talking about, they want to end human trafficking for or have this reform for, are there and are needing of advocacy and help, they're silent. And a lot of people do not see the interconnectedness of that when you have the face that are people of color that are experiencing this violence, that are experiencing this trafficking. You are less likely to have people have a more widespread, um, you know, outrage, disappointment, whatever words you want to use um, to highlight what's going on. And so that is what makes people say, you're silent, you're silent, you know, because you've chosen to be outwardly vocal about a thing and when there is the connectedness of a subject that is something maybe you're passionate about maybe you've stated you're passionate about and then you don't say anything people are like where are you at so um this isn't that statement really isn't for people who are let's just say more quieter online maybe for lurkers or whatever (laughs) but it's 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 really directed towards people who are very blatant with what they're saying like this is how i feel and whatever else so um, I wanted to clear that up because, you know, I feel like people are, are rightfully so getting fatigued online. Like if I say something, is it performative? Or if I don't say something, are people going to say I'm I'm not, you know, caring or whatever? And so everybody's getting exhausted trying to figure out how to navigate advocating online. We all need to advocate, right? The Internet is the way that we spread awareness at this juncture and where we are at in technology. So We do have a job to spread awareness in a way that works for each of us. It's not going to be the same for everybody and everybody's job and advocacy is different. But whether that's online for you or in person for you, please do start helpful and useful conversations. Start reading with people about what is going on um, in the um, Middle East and just start asking thoughtful questions and, um, you know, being a good citizen being engaged. Yeah. And what I appreciate about you, I mean, because sometimes I think it's like people expect you to give a prepackaged 
solution. And what I appreciate about your online comments about the conflict are like, I'm listening and I'm learning. And sometimes that's helpful in raising awareness of like, hey, I should be listening and learning about this too. Because um, yeah, like Palestine, Israel, having been there, yeah, it's, I still don't understand. And it is terrible. And, but we should be concerned because like what we say here matters, how our America, our government reacts to what is happening there. But yeah, I think sometimes just saying listening and learning is a way of advocating. And yeah. I appreciate that you did that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm like, I want to model what I'm talking about. You know, I'm an expert in my own experience, right? But I am not an expert in other people's experiences. Yeah. And so I have to do what I'm asking other people to do, which is just listen and learn. And so... Um, it's okay to say I don't know. I wish more people said it, to be honest. Exactly. Um, like I don't know. I I am not sure. And there's freedom but in that. But I'm but I appreciate that you're it's like I'm I don't know, but also too, like you're not stopping at that. Like I'm gonna educate myself. You know what I mean? Because I think yeah, sometimes yeah. people get to your point, I do think we're like all weary of like social media and like sometimes that activism that comes with that and that pressure. But I do think sometimes yeah, just saying I don't know and then just kind of like going about your life. But I think even, yeah, I will. I think listening and learning is a part of advocacy. And so, um, but yeah, but people should say I don't, I don't know, especially about Israel-Palestine. I think more people should say I don't know. Yeah, just I don't but know. But I'm listening and, and learning. Read up, y'all. Read up. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> read up and then free yes. yourself. Free yourself of other kind of pressures you're putting on yourself. Life is a lot. I get it. You know, but just realize that it's 2021 and you are going to keep seeing people talk about advocacy and how to speak up online because that's what we have. So what, what is it? Your favorite, favorite quote? Readers, readers are leaders. Readers are leaders. That's it. That's that's <laughs> that's it. If you're struggling, read. OK, um, so that's what we have for you for this golf says it's a little long this time, but there's a lot going on in the world. And I, I think we have a responsibility to be thoughtful and to contribute, um, you know, to what's going on and to contribute to, you know, the solutions. And the only way to do that is to educate ourselves. Exactly. Because I think, yeah, I think the theme of this Goafsis is like we have a shared humanity and we have a responsibility to care about the humanity and the flourishing of other people. Absolutely. Guys, that's all we have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. We want to thank Show Baraka for joining us today for a delightful conversation. You can buy his book. He saw that it was good wherever books are sold. We suggest seeking out a Black-owned bookstore in keeping with the many ways of doing activism or even your local independent bookstore. Um, his music is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever y'all listen to music these days. Wherever the kids are getting music, you can find it there. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. We are trying to get to 200 reviews, um, and we would love your help to help us reach that goal. Join our Patreon community. Our patrons get to listen to episodes a day early, commercial-free, extended editions of Go Off This, so much other stuff. And even when we pause and take a break for the season, we'll still be updating and doing stuff for our Patreon community. So... Thank you so much. We also want to thank uh, Sarah and Courtney for increasing your monthly donation. And we're still $195 shy of our monthly podcast expenses goal. So we would love for you all to help us out. Help us help sisters out. Okay. Um, and help us to raise $195 <laughs> more uh, dollars in monthly support um, for the podcast. Whether that is you, somebody you know, a business, 
that wants to support us, um, we would love to um, reach that goal. And um, pretty soon we'll be talking about how more of you can also work with us um, in other ways doing advertising. So, you know, you're going to hear more from us. We are not going anywhere. We are committed to the Melanated Faith podcast. And let me just tell you, I've read some of the most recent reviews on the podcast and we love you all. We're so grateful for your support. Some of you have said, I feel like we are friends. Yes, we are friends. And I am glad that you decided to hang out with us and, you know, let us accompany you on your drive. Have a great day and we're going to catch you next time. Bye.